This is a psalm of personal lament, and you're going to see that today in the psalm. David is going to be crying out to God because he's surrounded and he's overwhelmed by all kinds of troubles. He's in deep water up to his neck. He's struggling with the enemy. He's crying out for deliverance, for justice, for vengeance. But he's also going to cry out for revival and for nearness to God. We're going to see that in this chapter. One of the commentators, G. Campbell Morgan, said this about Psalm 69. Perhaps in no psalm in the whole Psalter is the sense of sorrow more profound or more intense than in this psalm. The soul of the singer pours itself out in unrestrained abandonment to the overwhelming and terrible grief which consumes it. So it's a psalm of personal lament, but we're also going to see a psalm of praise. And that's the thing I love about these psalms is they might start out with lament, but they always come around. They always come back to praise for, to God. But there's something else I want to point out today about Psalm 69. It's a messianic psalm. There are references scattered throughout this great chapter about Jesus. In fact, next to Psalm 22... This is probably the second most messianic psalm in this great book. And really, as you look in the Old Testament, there's no book in the Old Testament quoted more in reference to Jesus Christ than the book of Psalms. So I have a PowerPoint slide I just wanted to shoot up there that gives you kind of an overview of the passages that we're going to see today as we move through this great chapter that tie into the life of Christ, that are used by Jesus himself or New Testament authors to teach us something about him. And we're going to be dealing with those as we move through. There are six references throughout. Now, when we talk about Messianic Psalm, there's really three tiers of applying to Jesus. And we're going to see this today. First tier is Jesus himself taking a passage of Scripture and saying, that's about me. The writer in the Old Testament was writing about me, and it's being fulfilled right now in my life. So that's tier number one. Tier number two is when an author in the New Testament, such as Paul or John or Peter, one of the New Testament authors, takes a passage and applies it and says, that's about Jesus. Or... Let's take that passage and apply it to some principle for us today. So that's tier number two. And then the third tier is when people like me, the pastor or the teacher, take a passage and go, it's speaking about Jesus. There's something there we can learn about him from this passage. And so today we're going to see all three tiers playing out. When reading this psalm, you can read it in two different ways. One is it's a personal prayer of David and we can take that and learn something from it. We're going to do that today. But you can also take it and go, it's a psalm about Jesus. It's a psalm where we can learn some things about him. And we're going to do that today also. The main idea of this passage is during times of persecution, seeming spiritual isolation, we can experience great growth and deepened relationship with God. Our suffering for the name of Jesus can lead to praise. We can move from lament and difficulty to praise and worship. So I want to start out by reading the first 28 verses of the psalm. And this is the lament piece. And then we're going to move into the praise piece 
later on. So this is the first section. Psalm 69, verses 1 through 28. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the gulfs and the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am, I am the song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire, do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Wow. Those are some words of sorrow, grief, shame, scorn. Words of vengeance are in there. So what's going on here? In the first four verses, David is just crying out to the Lord for help. Lord, save me. I'm up to water, up to my neck here, Lord. He speaks of this issue of he's sinking. He's in this water. And there's really kind of two different ways he sees this water um, as a risk to him. The first one is kind of this slow, gradual sinking. He says, it's like I'm standing on this mire, this muck, and I'm just sinking down into it, and the water is rising up and up and up, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna drown. 
Lord. It's interesting, I remember, this might date me a little bit, but I remember going home after church on Sundays and watching the old Tarzan shows. And one of the things that Tarzan would find himself often in the jungles there was quicksand. So here's this great, mighty person, Tarzan. All of a sudden, he's in the mire. And the more he struggles, the worse it gets. And that's the way quicksand works. The more you try to get out of it, the deeper you go down into it. You need somebody to come and help you out. You need somebody to throw you a vine to get you out of that quicksand. That's what David's talking about here. He's saying, Lord, I'm in this muck. I'm in this mire, and the more I struggle, the deeper down I get in it, the worse it is. I need you to come and get me out of this. You know, we have mires in our lives. Maybe it's unbelief and doubt. Maybe it's mires of the mire of trials and difficulty. Maybe it's inward sin and addictions that we struggle with. And it seems like the more we try to get ourselves out of it, the worse it gets. But there's a second kind of flood that he speaks of here, and it's, it's like these floods are engulfing me. It's this more of a sudden flash of water that's coming in, and I'm going to drown, Lord. I remember one time back in New York State where my relatives lived, there was a creek close, and it was a stream that was in this very deep gorge. And one day we all grabbed these garbage bags, you know, the black garbage bags, and we went to this creek, and back in New York State, it's shale rock, and so you would have this area of natural water slides. So what we'd do is we'd fill these bags up with water, tie them off, and use them kind of like an inner tube to kind of, you know, shield our, our tail ends from being, you know, from the rock and slide down these water slides. So we were just having a great time laughing and having a good time. All of a sudden, we kind of looked up into the, into the sky from this deep ravine and realized there are some very dark clouds above us. Next thing you know, a storm comes in. Now, it's not rain in Oregon. It's a storm. It was violent. Things started to fall from the cliffs above us. The water started to rise suddenly. And we realized we better get out of here now or this is not going to go well. So we had to flee the flood, the stream. Fortunately, we got out of there. But that's what David's talking about. Sudden flood, Lord. I'm sinking here. I need help. But it's more than that. He says, I'm worn out. My throat is parched from just crying out to you, God. My eyes are failing, looking for you. There's this image of him just wearing out. It's like his very life is going out from him. And in the Old Testament, when they spoke of eyes failing, that's what it meant. My life is leaving me here, God. There's no hope. That's the situation that he finds himself in. That's the description. So what's going on, David? Why are you feeling this way? Well, verse 4 gives us the reason it's defined. He says, they hate me, my enemies. They hate me without reason. There's this undeserved reproach. They're trying to destroy me. They're as many as the hairs of my head. Now, David was not bald. He was probably a hairy man with a full beard. He's saying, I've got enemies that are all around me. I just can't even number them. They're not just annoying people. They're powerful people. They can do me in, Lord. This is a serious deal. But it's all undeserved. It's without cause. It's without reason. 
Have you ever suffered unjustly for a wrong reason or for no reason, no fault of your own? I think of examples, you're in a car, you're at a stop sign, somebody rear-ends you. Your car's damaged, you're damaged, maybe hurt and injured because of somebody else's actions. That's one way. Or identity theft. Somebody steals your identity. You suffer because of somebody else's choice in your life. Maybe it's a coworker or a boss who just has it out for you at work. Nothing that you do can change that. It's, I'm suffering unjustly. This is the first of the passages that I showed on the PowerPoint earlier that is referred to in the New Testament. In John chapter 15, verse 25, Jesus quotes this verse. And he's talking to his disciples about the fact that the world is going to hate you. How's that for a selling point for being a follower of Jesus? Guess what? They hated me without cause. They're going to hate you without cause. So Jesus draws from Psalm 69. It, it was like he was thinking about that chapter. And he's saying, what David wrote then is true about me. It was true then about him, it's true about me, and it's going to be true of you as my disciples. The scribes, the religious leaders, hated Jesus. They're going to hate you too, without cause and without reason. And then he says at the end of verse 4, he says, I'm forced to restore what I didn't steal. It's this injustice. I'm having to pay for things, restore things that I did not take. Now there's a little play on this. Philippians 2 verse 6 says, and it's speaking of Jesus, it says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In some of the versions it says he did not consider equality with God, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. I find that kind of an interesting phrase there, the idea that Jesus didn't steal his deity, it was his for all from all eternity. He did, but he also didn't use it to his advantage. He didn't steal, yet he was condemned to die by humanity. He didn't steal, yet he chose, and here's the play on word, he chose to restore us. David says, I didn't steal, but I was forced to restore. I had to. Jesus says, I did not steal but I chose to restore you to right relationship with God. That's the play on words. In verses five through 12, David is gonna confess some things. First there's folly, and then there's gonna be scorn. Verse five, and see David's humility in this. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. He starts out by saying, I'm innocent, but I'm not sinless, God. And you know that about me. That's something that you know. And I love his humility here. This is folly, not just in, not just silliness it's not just mistakes that are made it's not just misjudgments but it's folly in the worst sort of a way it's like moral insolence 
And David says, you know my guilt, God. You know, sometimes we use terms like that. I made a mistake. When in reality, we sinned. And we're sometimes a little bit gun-shy of saying it. But it helps to know that God already knows this about us. When we understand God's knowledge of us, he knows us deeply, it makes confession so much easier. We can just lay it out before him. You know it's not hidden from you, God. In verse six, his humility continues on because he speaks about his folly affecting others. His folly bringing shame and dishonor upon others. And if you think about it, he says, not only has my sin affected me, not only has my sin been a reproach to my God, but my sin has caused harm to others. He's not specific on what he means there, but he's looking out for others. I think of this often in terms of being pastor of a church, and my heart and my desire my prayer is that things in my life, my sins, don't bring scorn, dishonor to the church here at Clackamas Bible Church. It would be easy for that to happen as a pastor. And so I, I take that very seriously, and I want, I want to avoid that at all costs. And so you just see David's humility in here. Folly for David's sake, but then he talks about scorn for God's sake. Look at verse 7. I endure scorn for your sake, God, because I stand in righteousness, because I stand for you, I'm enduring scorn. Jesus bore the shame and the scorn for God's sake. Hebrews 12.2 says when Jesus went to the cross, he endured the cross, he scorned its shame. He was willing to do that for God's sake. To bear Christ's name will mean bearing insults, will mean bearing scorn for him as a Christian. Verse 8, he speaks about family division. He says, I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Sometimes when you stand for God, your family's not going to like it. Some of you understand exactly what I'm talking about. It's going to put you at odds with people within your own family. Jesus under, David understood that, first of all. He had Absalom, his own son, try to take the throne from him and chase him out of Jerusalem. He had to run for his life from his own son. David got that. He understood that. But Jesus understood how that felt to have his own family think he was crazy. Mark chapter 3, there's a story where Jesus is teaching He's in a house. All of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. It's his family, his brothers and sisters, mom. But they're knocking on the door, and it says there that they wanted to take charge of him because they thought he was out of his mind. Here's Jesus doing the will of his father, teaching others, doing miracles, and his own family thinks he's crazy, and they want to take him back to Nazareth, maybe get some help for him. So Jesus understood what it was like to suffer scorn for God's sake. Now in verse 9, the first part of the verse, the second part of the verse are both references used in the Old Testament. The first part talks about zeal. 
It says, zeal for your house consumes me. David says, I have this overriding passion and zeal for the house of the Lord. And we know that was true of David. He said in the book of Psalms, he says, it's better to be one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. I would rather be with the Lord in his house, worshiping him than anywhere else in this world. We also know that David had this incredible passion to build a house for God. But God said, sorry, that's not gonna happen in your lifetime. Your son Solomon will build the temple for me. So that had to be difficult for David. He just had this zeal about him for the house of God. But there's a reference in the book of John, chapter two, verse 17, where Jesus is cleansing the temple. They had taken it from a house of prayer to a den of thieves, that's what Jesus said. And so he goes in there and he just drives them out. And it says in John 2.17 that the disciples remembered this verse back in Psalm 69, verse 9. And they said the zeal for his house consumes him. That's what's going on. He's driving these people out. So it was fulfilled in Jesus, the zeal for his father's house. And then the second part of the verse, the insults of those who insult you fall on me. David is speaking this, but it's really referring to Jesus. In the New Testament, Romans 15, verse 3, Paul says that Jesus chose to be mocked and insulted and not to please himself. We need to go and do likewise. Jesus chose to take up the insults for the sake of God we as believers need to do the same thing, to build other people up. Don't only look at your own interests, but also for the interests of others, to build them up. And so this, again, this verse is used in the New Testament as an illustration for you and me, that we need to bear up under those insults. Verses 10 to 12 describe this situation where he is mourning and fasting. He says, I weep and I fast and I endure this scorn. I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me. I'm the song of drunkards. It's a terrible situation. And picture this, if you will. Here's this person. He's in sackcloth. He's crying. He's mourning. He is wailing to God. And yet people are choosing to come up and make fun of him and laugh at him and mock him. It's hard to imagine this situation. But that's what's going on. They're making sport of me, David says. The idea there, the picture there is I'm a byword. I'm a joke to people. I am the material of their comedy. I think as Christians today, because of God, don't be surprised if we become a joke to other people. You might hear terms like right-wing fanatics, fundamentalists, We might be easy material for TV comedies, and we are. Narrow-minded, haters, things like that. We're going to get labeled as such. We're going to be made fun of. We're going to be a byword. Those that are in the gates, those that are drunk. The high, those that are respected in the community, David says. They're making fun of me. They're mocking me. The drunks that are drunk... They're singing songs about me and mocking me. You got high and low. 
Look at the life of Jesus. You've got the religious leaders mocking him. You've got a thief on the cross right next to him mocking. The high and the low. All of the above, they're all mocking me, David says. And that was the experience that Jesus had. So David again is going to cry out to God. I love what he says in verse 13. But I pray to you, God. This is all going on. This is all in my ears. I can hear the songs, the mocking, the names. But I choose to pray to you, God. In the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. There's three things he mentions there in that verse, in verse 13, that he's counting on. Number one, in the time of your favor. Timed favor. This is that idea of God's grace. His blessing. But it's a timed thing. I gotta wait for it. There's this tension between our need and God's timing. You know, I find it interesting that we're very patient with God's timing in reference to our sins, and we're thankful for that. Thank you, God, that you're patient with me when I sin. And I'm, I, I bank on that, and I'm grateful. But it's different when it comes to difficulties. I'm not maybe as thankful for God's patience and his timing in reference to, I'm in, a, I'm in difficulty here, God. Come on. Hurry it up. I need it now. I'm not about the patience of God there. But this idea of it's timed. The last song that was sung before I came up, Hiding in His Timing was sung. And I thought, what a beautiful way to put that. I'm in this situation. It's up to God. I'm waiting on His timing to extend His favor to me, not on mine. And that's a difficult place to be, but I'm there. And then there's His great love. That is God's motive. It's His reason for His favor in my life. He's motivated by His love for me. Then there's sure salvation. I know that what he says is true. I can trust him to save me. I know I'm saved. I'm sure of my salvation because of God's favor and God's love. The three of them work together beautifully. His favor, his love, his salvation. That's what David is counting on here, God. In verses 14 and 15, he returns back to the imagery of the water. Here I am again, God. I'm in deep water, I'm in the mire, the flood is coming up to my neck, I'm going under. But yet, he reaches out in verse 16 and he says, God, your love is there, your great mercy. That word mercy is a very interesting word. The the word there is rahamim. It's the root word for womb. It's like God's motherly care for us in the womb. I appreciate this a lot after going through and praying for my daughter Amy in the hospital delivering our granddaughter. And, but the picture there of a mom and how much care and concern for that baby that is in her womb, making sure that they're eating right, making sure getting rest, et cetera, et cetera, going in for regular visits. But that's God's care for us. It's like he cares for us like an unborn child. What a beautiful picture. Verses 19 to 21, David puts himself in Christ's place. Listen to these verses. 
It says, you know how I'm scorned. I'm disgraced and I'm shamed. All my enemies are before you. Here they are, God. Scorn has broken my heart, it's left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food, and they gave me vinegar for my thirst. Again, he goes back to you know, God. You know my folly, but you also know my situation. You're aware, God, your absence, your silence is not the result of ignorance here. You're still there. You care about me. It's David speaking, but it's clearly Jesus Christ. His reproach and scorn at the cross. Think about it in this way. There was the crowd at his trial. There was Judas betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. There were the disciples abandoning him in his hour of need. There was Herod in his cunning. There was Caiaphas, the high priest, in his council. There was Pilate in his back and forth vacillation. There were the Roman guards at the cross casting dice for his clothes. How much scorn, disgrace, and shame is that? These words appear throughout this passage, this idea of scorn and disgrace and shame and an honor and shame culture like the Middle East culture of David's time and of Jesus' time, these words just appear throughout this passage. Jesus bore those things, scorn, disgrace, and shame for us. In verse 21, instead of getting comfort and sympathy, his enemies tried to poison his food. They put gall in his food. They tried to kill him. They tried to take his life. And then they gave him vinegar to drink. This is another one of those references to Jesus. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, refer to this verse. On the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. And it says the soldiers put a sponge and they put this really sour, nasty vinegar on a hyssop branch and they put it up to Jesus' lips to drink. And there it was. While he was thirsting, they're putting this nasty vinegar in front of him and saying, go ahead and drink, Jesus. Again, this is a picture of him the shame and the scorn that he took for us. Verses 22 to 28, David's had enough. The tone is gonna change. Instead of, Lord, help me, David's gonna cry out and say, Lord, punish. This is an imprecatory piece. David is gonna call down curses upon his enemy. Verses 22 and 23 May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Those two verses, verses 22 and 23, are used by Paul in Romans 11, verses 9 and 10. Paul quotes these verses in reference to Israel and their rejection of the Messiah. And he says, because they've rejected Christ, may they be blind. May their backs be bent forever. May the table before them become a trap and a snare. They had their chance. Jesus came. He shared the gospel. They purposely turned their back on him. So they're going to suffer the consequences. And so Paul uses these very verses against his brethren, the Jewish people. And again, these curses that David is praying upon his enemies, the table, this idea of comfort and ease and food and fellowship may be a trap 
and a place of ensnarement to them. May their eyes be darkened, physically as well as spiritually. May they not see. May their back be bent. He speaks there of physical strength. When your back goes out, guess what? You're in trouble. There's not going to be a lot you can do in that situation. Many of you have been in that situation. Verse 24, David says, Pour out your wrath, God, on my enemy. That, you're saying something. When you ask God to pour out wrath on people, those are some very harsh words. May their place, in verse 25, may their place be deserted. This is the last of the references used in the New Testament. That verse was used in Acts chapter 1, and the disciples referred to it when they replaced Judas Iscariot, and they brought in a new apostle in his place. Judas betrayed Jesus. May his place be deserted. It speaks of belonging to the family. It's gone for him. We're bringing somebody else in. May they crime upon crime be accounted to their case. May they have no clearance from guilt. And then verses 27 and 28 It says this, charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Wow. May they not come to a saving knowledge of you, God. May their names be blotted out of the book of life. We're talking about not just, God, would you curse them in this life, but God, would you curse them in the life to come, in the eternal life? These are some very harsh, very difficult words. By the way, the, this idea of blotting out of the book of life, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, in the letter to the church at Sardis, there's a promise made by Jesus himself to the church and to Christians to never remove or blot out their names from the book of life. As a believer in Christ, That will never happen to you and me. It's there. It's written. It will not be blotted out. It will not be removed. The question for you today is your name in that book. Is your name in the book of life? The reality is you don't get your name in that book at birth. When you are born, you're born into sin. You're born into Adam. You're born into death. Separation from Christ. It's through faith in him that your name gets added into the book. And I want to be very clear on this. So if you today have not made that decision to reach out and to accept that free gift of God's grace, it's time to get your name written in that book of life. Now these are strong words, but David's not speaking for his sake, but for God's name and for God's glory. He's not necessarily saying what David wants God to do, but what God will do to them if they don't repent. You see the difference there? It's not necessarily David saying, God, this is what I want to happen, but he's realizing that if they don't repent and choose to follow God, it will happen. It's going to become a reality in their life. Christ didn't pray down curses on his enemies when he was up there on the cross, but he prayed down forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing here. Instead of praying down wrath and curses, he took God's wrath on himself. He took 
all those curses that were lined out against us for disobeying God, he took all those upon himself and he bore all those for you and me. So he could then pray forgiveness to those that stood at the foot of the cross, his enemies that had put him there and that mocked him. Our job today is not to pray down God's curses on our enemies, it's to pray that God would forgive them because of the finished work of Christ. Our job today is to love our enemies and to seek to bring about reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. That's our job. So, wow. Lament, imprecatory, but you know, the psalm doesn't end here. Let's read the last verses from Psalm verse 29 on. But as for me, it's going to change here. Afflicted, I'm in pain, I'm in deep water, I'm flooding. May your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and its hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy. He does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion. He will rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there. They will possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell there. These are words of praise. It's lament to praise. There's personal and communal praises in the first verses. It's now. I'm going to choose now to praise God in song and thanksgiving. You know, one way to get out of that miry pit one way to get out of lament is to praise in song and thanksgiving, is to offer thanksgiving to God. And I love verse 31. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. David's saying the attitude of worship is more important than the act. It's how I come to God more than what I do in coming to God, the form of worship. Romans 12, verse 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship. Offer your bodies as sacrifices, your lives, your obedience, your worship. That's what God wants. It's not in how I come to God, but in my heart, in my attitude. And then I love verse 32 and 33. He invites all I want to praise God, but I want to invite people to join me. You who are poor, those that are needy, you that are captive, come, let's praise God together. But even that's not enough. Look at verse 34. Let all heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. This is cosmic praise. This is not just people, but it's all of God's creation. This is a future where we will realize all of God's promises, all of God's blessings in our life. And specifically with Israel here, he's speaking about a time where the cities will be rebuilt, where the people will be able to dwell in peace and security and not worry. The psalm begins very lowly, but it ends on a very high note. I entitled this sermon, Growing in the darkness. And I just kind of want to end with some thoughts about how can we, in times of even difficulty and 
darkness, how can we take those and grow? I have five, if you want to shoot those up, thank you. These are them. Just something to think about today. How do we grow in the dark? Number one, maybe we can learn new ways to pray. Maybe in those dark times, we can learn to pray to God in a different sort of a way. Praying to God rather than at God. Praying for God's will maybe rather than what I need or want. Praying to really learn more about who God is and telling him more about what's going on in my life, not just what I want from him. You know, there's, I read an article recently about signs of burnout, and there were five signs of burnout, and I think a lot of us maybe are experiencing a little bit of that today, is that fair? But the first sign of burnout is wearisome. You just are weary. Scripture says, Christ says in Matthew 11, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, guess what? I'm going to give you rest. Do we need some rest today? Goodness sakes, I mean, it never ends, does it? We're weary. We're on the way to burnout. Let's come to him and get some rest. You know, it's a perfect time to dive into the word. When God seems quiet, remember he's already spoken in his word. We have 66 books of what he's already said to us. Maybe it feels like he's not there. Maybe he's not speaking to you right now, or maybe you don't feel that, but he has. It's right here. What better time than now to get into his word? I would encourage you to get into the book of Psalms during the summer, along with me. 150 chapters there to read and really enjoy. It's a chance to increase your communication with others. Often what happens is when we're down, when when we're in the darkness, we isolate. We withdraw from people. It's hard to get out of that, isn't it? So what happens is we get into the self-pity and discouragement, disappointment, fall even harder on us. I would encourage you to reach out to brother or sister because they will help you soften the blow maybe of that discouragement and that depression. But they will also, it will also allow you to draw into fellowship closer with that individual. What a better time than during those dark times. Number four, makes times of consolation even more precious. You know, it's easy when things are going really well to kind of become apathetic, to become self-absorbed, to become kind of closed off from other people. And I think God uses the dark times because it's in those times of darkness that his light is brighter. It's in times of apparent silence that his voice is even louder. And then finally, these times of darkness gives me opportunity to pursue God. We're in this relationship with God, and it's, it's a two-way relationship. Have you ever been in a relationship where you're the one doing all the work? And it's like after a while, you just want to just give up on it. It's too much work. It's not happening. This isn't even a relationship at this point. Relationship with God is that way. James 4, verse 8 says, draw near to God, you then he will draw near to you. It's a two-way deal here. Times of darkness allow us and encourage us and push us maybe in the direction of drawing near to him. And what we experience then is him drawing near to us. My prayer today 
is as we continue through the Psalms that God would teach us how to draw closer to him even in the dark times of our life. Amen.